Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. You might think that Unix systems are the digital equivalent of dinosaurs and that they have little to no relevance today. However, that's not true. And the philosophical underpinnings of Unix have had a huge impact up until the present day, and will probably outlast all of us. In this episode, we're going to talk about some Unix principles that are still well worth observing today in a lot of situations that we encounter. And this is one of the deep roots of modern computing that is still well worth exploring. But before we get uh, started, Will, what have you been philosophizing lately? I don't know about philosophizing. I made a giant pot of chili. You know that big stock pot that I have? Yeah. It yeah. was like right at the top. Like like you couldn't you know, like just barely get it up to a simmer bowl mm-hmm. <laughs> because it'll go over. Yeah. And man, stuff has gotten expensive. Yes. Yeah, because I don't put I don't put beans in my chili because I, I keep it well, keep it low carb. And if you want to put beans in it, like it's it's going in the freezer anyway. So it kind of ruins the texture. Yeah. But yeah, it was like a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars worth of ground beef. Mm-hmm. It's it's insane, man. Oh, I know. My I used to be able to live on fifty dollars a week, and now it's over a hundred to go to the grocery store. Yeah. Well, I would hope you wouldn't eat that much hamburger meat in a week. <laughs> I mean, it's still. It was like, I don't know. It was probably eighteen twenty pounds of it. Costco. I mean, yeah, man. That's that's pretty brutal. Other than that, man, I've been just trying to get stuff ready to switch to Linux. I'm still fighting with uh, driver issues. Mm-hmm. and I can't get clean sound out of it. I mean, it's something small. Like, it, there's like a, a it, it sounds like there's clear audio with static coming in from somewhere else, and I can't figure out what it is that's driving me up the wall. But here soon, we ought to be able to test that and uh, get it going. So, yeah. How about you? Well, I am experiencing a blast from the past. My January friend visits again. This is three years running, actually. And uh, to quote my my nieces, we don't talk about Rona. No, no, no. <laughs> I got uh, got a positive coronavirus test the other day. I was sick. I think I mentioned it last week or in the aftercast or something that I I was wasn't feeling that great. And one of my um, one of my friends who helps me out with the keyboard stuff, uh, she had gotten sick, but she had gotten a negative coronavirus test, but. Uh, I didn't even think it was that. Like I had the sniffles for a few days and then Friday I was kind of out. And I think that was more from what I ate the night before I finished off my chili and kind of tore my stomach up. And, but yeah, then yesterday I was talking about having been sick and missed a day of work and, uh, we we're supposed to get together for a, a work thing. And, um, one of the guys asked, he's like, you know, I was like, I, I'm sure it wasn't COVID because it just like it didn't feel like that at all. And he's like, you got a negative test? I'm like, not yet. So I went and got one of the home tests and it wasn't just like a little positive. 
like it was like you know make sure you look really close because it could it could be really faint no the the results were brighter than the the control like it was like blazing i'm like oh well yeah i think i got a positive result yeah anyway i've been quarantining since since then i hadn't like i didn't go out friday or saturday did run to the store sunday but you know so and then anyone that i had been around prior to that i uh i let them know so hopefully i'll be able to get back out into civilization by the end of the week saving money is hard especially in our current financial times i was super creative <laughs> not <laughs> well uh you know i mean it is kind of forefront of mind right now right that's true that's true we were, we we're just talking about um the cost of beef what's for dinner sorry Lucas Casadas is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And just like us at Complete Developer Podcast, he focuses on helping you to not only establish a real plan, but also to take action so that you can create the kind of life that you want to live. Guys, investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances with the help of Level Up the compounding impact of making those better financial decisions will easily pay for itself. Level Up also has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. And best of all, Lucas is a fiduciary for his clients. That means that he's not here to sell you a product, but to guide you toward a better financial situation. You can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics that you probably face, and he interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their own careers. And you can learn even more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. The Unix philosophy was originated by Ken Thompson and describes a set of cultural norms and approaches to minimalist modular software development. This philosophy was based on the experience of the leading developers of the Unix operating system. In the early days of software, there wasn't as many software tools as there are today. Uh, actually, software tools like the ones that we think of to, uh, to use to build software really weren't around, at least not the way we think of them. Back then, as thought of by the original Unix developers, they were a set of simple tools that could be combined to accomplish a task. Uh, these included things like uh, source code editors, compilers, debuggers, and that sort of stuff. Uh, this was also the philosophy for building Unix operating systems and is largely still in use today at some level in pretty much every major operating system. Yeah, and you know, this evolution was, was pretty interesting in that, you know, okay, we created tools, but where things really take off is where you start creating tools to create tools, you know, because it just makes things reproducible. And, you know, this is what early uh, Unix was. Now, there are a number of historical descriptions of the Unix philosophy going all the way back to the early 1970s, at least. It wouldn't surprise me if there's more before that, but that's as far back as I could find was like 1974, I think. Mm -hmm. But while emphasizing different points, they were all trying to kind of reach the same result. That is, making it as clean as possible to build software in a modular, transparent, and combinable manner. These approaches favored simplification of code and systems over raw performance, um, although obviously performance implications have always had to be considered. 
the approach also introduced ideas that we are still refining today, such as early and iterative testing of new ideas, rather than building the entire system before doing any testing at all. They even talked about larger systems being composed of smaller tools with smaller scope being composed together to produce the required functionality. And you might recognize the former as sounding awfully similar to what you've heard while learning Agile, and the latter to resembling discussions about the single responsibility principle as well as microservices. So these concepts are still around. It's just they've grown and shifted and you know kind of permeated the entire atmosphere of computing. Yeah. It's 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 interesting because I was going through your outline and I was like, you know, I know where this applies. I know where this applies. I know where this applies. That word is misspelled. <laughs> I mean, that's why I go through your outlines, but you know, I would think you do the same oh, for me, but you don't. Yeah, I don't. But uh, you know, my my spelling has been trashed by Russian practice. That and I'll drop articles even when I'm talking. Yeah, I, I've noticed. It's funny. I laugh at you inside my head. So, guys. In short, the Unix philosophy underpins most of the things we understand today as basic knowledge in software development. But the people that created it had to learn it the hard way by building systems and building the tools to build more systems while contending with business practices, budget constraints, and the oh-so-great team dynamics that we'd all still recognize today. Except they didn't get to work remote. Right. And they had to do all this while dealing with massive, expensive computer systems that weren't always transparent about what was going on, like at all. Uh, A quote from the preface to the Unix programming environment by Brian Kernigan and Rob Pike from Bell Labs expresses one of the most critical cultural norms. Even though the Unix system introduces a number of innovative programs and techniques, no single program or idea makes it work well. Instead, what makes it effective is the approach to programming, a philosophy of using the computer. Although that philosophy can't be written down in a single sentence, at its heart is the idea that the power of a system comes more from the relationships among programs than from the programs themselves. Many Unix programs do quite trivial things in isolation, but combined with other programs become general and useful tools. So in this episode, we're going to discuss some of the cultural norms and philosophical underpinnings of Unix that are still very visible today. It's important to note here that we didn't cover them all. In fact, these approaches have been under continual refinement and clarification since the very beginning. Like Unix itself, the principles of Unix have been ported to lots of different situations over the years, as well as into the hearts and minds of millions of professional software developers and hobbyists alike. And it's really interesting because um, like throughout it, it, especially with the Unix stuff, it talks about programs and like this, we were talking, you mentioned single responsibility. I was reading some of your stuff and I was like, you know, if you replace the word program with method or with component com- component I was just saying method or function like almost all of this applies to any software you write you're writing it it is fractally correct it goes all the way up to you know i mean up to cloud scale right and all the way down to you know small operations at the register level it's definitely something so that's why it's it's hard to say okay we're we're talking about you know the unix philosophy 
to the degree that we are able to in one podcast. Um, there were some lists that were 17 or 18 items long. There were some that were like four. And so I just kind of tried to distill out the pieces that I could in the best way that I can. So we'll, we'll start with uh, you know, the first one, which is write programs that do one thing and do it well. Um, it can be really tempting to add functionality to an existing program rather than creating a new one. But it complicates the program and it increases the scope of testing required while increasing the risk of breaking things for other applications or scripts. Yeah, this is when I think of like those those big monolith programs or applications or whatever. I don't know. The terminology is fun, but uh, like I, I just think of the the one that uh, we have where I work for time management and learning and reporting and like it's all the things. Is it Kronos? <laughs> no, it's like oh. it, it's it's a custom thing, but oh. it it really is. And what's hilarious is my manager used to work on that team and uh, I was talking to her about it the other day and she's like, yeah, she's like, I know that, you know, we kind of have a standard of edge throughout the whole organization, but it works better in Chrome. Yeah. Like, yep. Yep. I'm not surprised. Well, you know, one other thing that's interesting on this is if you think about like our larger programs and our larger systems, how much of them is actually doing something versus routing. Mm-hmm. to get something to a small enough component to handle the thing. I just remember wanting to uh, to create something that we could, like a small app that we could use. And I said, oh, that's going to be like, there's a team working on that and they're going to be adding that to this bigger thing. And I'm like, that doesn't belong there. Like, it doesn't even make sense to put it there. It's just, it's, they want all the things in one. I'm like, if you put them, have them all separate and then have something that kind of like, guides i don't know it's well i mean that's that's experience i've had over and over again right like you have a bunch of disparate apps and it's like okay we're going to combine them into one big system that does all the things and then eventually that system gets so unwieldy they're like okay we got to break this other piece off so we can iterate on it and then yeah. eventually it just it, it merges and splits and merges and splits just over and over again that's pretty common and the split one is probably easier to deal with because it's you know it's actually built on on reasonable assumptions mm-hmm. uh, the thing is, it tends to make programs simpler and more stable to maintain once they're effectively done. Actually, without this principle, a program is never actually done. Done, Right. How do you define done? Yeah, well, you know, you're not sitting there with a whole bunch of new features to add. Yeah. Right. So if you were to go and, you know, look at like grip on Linux. All right. What are they going to add to grip? Not a ton of stuff. They're going to fix bugs and, you know, like they still got to maintain it. There may be some small features, but, you know, the the rush where there's interface instability and lots of new pull requests and all that kind of stuff, that has kind of gone away, right? It's stabilized and other stuff can now safely use it. Yeah. Speaking of which, the very next uh, philosophy is write programs to work together. In the Unix philosophy, it is assumed that applications will use other applications rather than considering the user interface to be the most important thing. The Unix philosophy treats programmatic and scripting access as first-class citizens, often with a higher priority than the other interface. Yeah. uh, Often with significantly higher priority than the other user interface, because that is the user interface. They assume that the users are other programs first. This also 
tends to kind of force a little bit of an upper bound on application complexity because there's only so much you can reasonably do with a command line interface yeah uh, you know on a single program it gets it gets pretty gnarly pretty quick so it it actually helps keep stuff small mm-hmm. now, next write programs that handle text streams because it's a universal interface you know in the unix philosophy the primary method for one program to manipulate another one is the command line interface that will was talking about and guess what guys the cli is text-based while this can be rather annoying in some cases, uh, especially when working with more complex or binary data, uh, it does make it a lot easier to understand what's going on because you can look at raw text. Yeah. It also tends to mean that applications will ship directly with at least a little bit of help that is accessible on the command line. Uh, which makes functionality a lot more discoverable rather than relying on documentation methods that may or may not be available. So this philosophy right right here, this may not sound terribly relevant, but we do have a pretty good analog of this with things like REST APIs, right? You're still HTTP in general, like you're passing text back and forth. You may, you know, you may encode, you know, some binary data in there and yeah, you've made that nastier, but it's easier and more traceable. Yeah, this is the same principle just applied over the web instead of through a command line interface. We found that that's really useful. Well, yeah, I mean, it's probably one of the, it is the the best way to to transfer information. Yeah, I mean, now you there are situations where it is painful. Uh, oh yeah, if, like large, you know, things that you know, large chunks of data or situations where you've got a high rate of data that needs to go and then you use something else, right? So, but that's not the first yeah. thing that you start with. It's, it's kind of the idea here, right? I mean, yeah. in, in Unix, there's going to be that too. Yeah, so I think that's the the point is that you default to to text and then if it needs to be something else, you have a good reason for it. And you have also have to build a tool chain to support whatever that other thing is. Yeah. Because that's an expectation culturally versus starting out with the thing that's not supported and then, you know, okay, well, nobody has a tool chain, so I can get away with it. Next, you should assume that the output from one program will be used as the input of another as yet unknown program. So you don't have tight coupling between, between the components. And you say, okay, well, when I'm dumping data out of this thing, you know, either, you know, because something else is automating my app or because, you know, somebody's taking my output and piping it some, you know, somewhere else and doing some kind of orchestration scheme, the data needs to be usable by that other party. So, you know, no proprietary format type stuff in the mix, no, you know, no weirdness that makes it hard to parse, you know, unless you know some regex as long as your arm that isn't documented, you know, that kind of stuff. This implies that the scope of an application will be limited, discoverable, and stable. Uh, so you may not know how your application will be used as it only provides a small piece of functionality. But if you build a clean interface, then somebody else can use the app, possibly without your intervention. At least that's the intent. Yeah. It makes you more scalable. Well, this also means that your application's output needs to be easily parsable since your application is interacting with other applications on the command line, back to passing text back and forth. It needs to be 
as easy as possible for another application to use your output. And speaking of outputs, and sorry for the horrid face that I just made, it appears we have skunks near here. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I was that. not looking at you, so... Okay, well, that's good, because I made a face. It's uh, pretty gross. I guess it's nighttime now. All right, so the next one is to separate mechanisms from policy. And this one's a little harder to understand. Like, I had to actually look this up and go, what are they talking about here? Um, And then it was like, you know, facepalm. Oh, because, you know, once you put it in English, it actually makes sense. But basically the deal here is that a mechanism is the means by which an end is achieved, while a policy is the thing that you're trying to implement. The mechanism used by the system to implement a policy should not overly dictate what the policy actually does or what it can actually be. It should just be like, hey, here's how this gets implemented. Okay. Does that that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So you're you separate your end from how you get there. Right. You know, because the end may change. You may go, hey, we need to do this other thing. I don't want to rewrite the whole mechanism. Yeah. All roads lead to Rome. Right. I get it. Makes sense. And probably a better, more approachable way to say this is uh, don't paint yourself into a corner. I'll I'll give an anecdote that's also useful. There is a school, I think in Maryland, and it just hit the news this week, that the school's lights have been on for a year and it's costing taxpayers tons of money. Okay, so this is a situation where the mechanism and the policy got intertwined. What they did is they said, okay, we're going to put smart light switches everywhere, right? Okay. Great. And, you know, that way they can turn off and we'll save money, right? So our policy is we're going to go green, we're going to, you know, do something that's entirely sensible when you've got a giant honking building. But the problem is that their mechanism did not work well. So this actually burned them on policy because lights won't turn off and there's something wrong with the vendor provided system. And I think the vendor actually went under and they can't turn them off because the switches themselves, you know, essentially are implementing a policy, right? They're not just a mechanism to go, hey, there's nobody here. Let's turn off. Or there's nobody here for 15 minutes. Let's turn off. Or it's after X period at night and we got a signal. Let's turn off. It's like, nope, we know it all at the switch. And they can't fix it. Yeah. I I, I, I guess they could throw a breaker, probably. That's a little aggressive. I mean... I mean, we did it in Windows all the time, right? You just reboot. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, it, it, it is what it is. It's not... But yeah, no, that, I get that. Uh, the, the whole... Here's a good episode topic for us. Smart isn't always smart. It, it almost never is. Yeah. It's not smart for you. It's smart for whoever's selling it. Right, right. I have, uh, I have some smart plugs that get on my nerves, but they still... They work about 90% of the time. And it's really convenient to get up and have the lights turn on at the time I wake up and be able to say stuff like tell my either Alexa or whatever, turn on this light or from my phone, I can turn them on before I get home. Ah, I just turn on the flashlight app on my Android and walk over to a light switch if I have to. I'm not, yeah, I'm not into all that. I implement the policy. You guys are the mechanism and the two will not meet. (laughs) Yeah. 
All right. So uh, the next one is write programs which fail in a way that is easy to diagnose. Oh, yes, please. Uh, While more complex applications often hide errors, you typically don't want to do this in a Unix-style application. Instead, you want to make it obvious what failed and why. Your users are assumed to be capable of taking this information and correcting the problem. Yeah. Yeah, it it gets annoying when you're like, you just got, it's just a 500. I don't know what happened. I'm just getting back a 500. And then, you know, you have to go dig to figure out what's going on. I've got an application on my NAS that if the application falls over, which it does sometimes, um, it's just for monitoring, all of the things that it's monitoring just disappear off the board. There's no warning in a console anywhere. It's just suddenly not there. And then 45 seconds later, here it is back again. It opened the socket back up. And I can't figure out what it is because there's no indication anywhere, uh, including when I go in Docker and like poke at it on the you know, on the logs, you don't want to do that. If people, especially if other programmers are relying on your app to do some piece of functionality, you want to tell them what's wrong. Cause you got to bear in mind, they're assembling pieces together, right? They're building a system on top of it. So you want your stuff to be, you know, very clear about what's wrong or what isn't and whether it's your fault or not, frankly, because otherwise you're going to be getting, getting blamed. I mean, we all know, we've all met developers who will blame the compiler for anything that goes wrong. And it's like the compiler is probably not the issue. You know, very rarely it is, but most of the time, not so much. You know, this also means that the application really needs to be able to return things like error codes rather than only printing an error message or just acting like everything is just hunky-dory and it failed, you know, the silent failure thing. The idea here is to make it easy to troubleshoot when something goes wrong or to allow other programs to actually dynamically react to something being wrong. Yeah. I actually got into using errors more effectively. My APIs and stuff. Like actually using the HTTP error codes. Yeah. It makes a difference. Well, it's like we have one, there's a business process where like you're creating a new object and it can't have like, like one, one component of it has to be unique. And so... If, like, if they submit something that isn't, they'd be like, this shouldn't ever happen, but... (laughs) Which means it will. Yeah, I know. Like, it's like, we don't want to leave this error, like, this just out there. So, you know, if they do, then rather than just failing or just not saving, it returns a 409 conflict. Well, the thing with this kind of stuff is, is if you are hiding errors you're making an assumption about how somebody's using your program, right? They may be orchestrating some complex process that some things can fail on, right? There may be some other app that's like, hey, I'm going to run a thousand of these through and I know about 800 of them are going to work and I'm going to pull the other 200 out and do something else with those. And you don't know that. So you just say, hey, this failed and here's the the stuff that you need to know and and go on and you assume that they're competent enough to, to handle that. And that kind of brings in to affect the uh, the next thing that is is also very useful. <laughs> yeah, that's avoiding unnecessary output. Because your application's output is likely to be used by other applications, you should try to avoid outputting information that is not useful. 
Um, a great example of this is logging messages going to the console. You know, excess output makes it harder for the other app to process your output as input. Because of the principle that an unknown application may need to use your application in the future, you may need to allow more flexible output from your application based on the inputs so that a consuming application can more easily tell your application what data is needed. Yeah. And bear in mind, too, there's going to be apps that do this for you. Too, yeah. It can take an, an output and go, okay, well, I don't know, it's common to limited and I want to make it tab limited. So stream that. You know, there's something that'll do that. So that's kind of the the idea there is you're going to have to make the assumption that you don't know what's using your stuff. And you got to keep that assumption in mind, which is really, really hard for developers to do. Because, you know, we all are like, oh, well, a user's never going to need to know that, right? But you got to bear in mind, your users are other developers in this sense, or they're system admins, or they're some kind of techie type person. They're not, you know, it's it's not somebody that, thinks the internet is their iPhone more than likely. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, most people, they don't think it's the iPhone. They think the internet is the, the button or, like, yeah, or the, the website. Icon. Yeah. It's Google. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that's always fun trying to explain that to people. But yeah. Next, make data complicated when required, not the program. Fancy algorithms are harder to verify for correctness. Oh my goodness. Uh, while even complex data structures are a lot easier to verify due to the lack of things like halting problems. Right, because you don't have a halting problem with an XML document. Necessarily. Well, okay, I, 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 will, I will say this. It is probably possible to do that, um, especially once you get web service definitions and crap like that in the mix. But if you have a data structure that is finite, right, there's, there should not be infinite recursion that is hard to trace, at least. You may have references and some circular type stuff going on, but those are somewhat trivial to catch. Whereas if you have a program running, you don't have a way of proving that it will terminate, right? Because it's like, well, this thing's iterated 10 million times. Well, 10 million to one, it stops. If you said it, it, was, it was never going to stop, you were wrong, right? So that, that's the halting problem put very, very simply. So that is more of an issue when you have an algorithmic structure going on. Uh, So you're better off to keep the, you know, if the data is complex, that's fine because you can write stuff that can check that and actually verify it for completeness. But you can't have a program that says, hey, this this other program never terminates. Hey, doesn't uh, doesn't Visual Studio do that for you now? What? It'll tell you all about your code. They got this, the whole thing, uh, this, uh, what is it? Chat GPT, you know, you just, It'll, it'll check your code for you. <laughs> right. Uh, well, you know you're running on Windows, so you're rebooting for an update fairly soon. Yeah, that's uh, true. So your program, actually, they have, they have solved the halting problem by being unreliable. That is, is probably the best way to, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, it, it's sort of like uh, cheap emergency braking. You know, you aim for something that's already a piece of crap anyway. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the way that to works. solve it. No, but I mean, there, there really is kind of a fundamental asymmetry as far as the difficulty in verifying program correctness versus verifying data structure correctness. Mm -hmm. The thing is, a lot of us, like this is where it gets tricky is because I think a lot of us as developers, we tend to think in algorithms, at least that's the way I think, and not in data structures. It's like our our DBAs, 
We don't know how many DBAs we got listening, but shout out to you guys. You guys I'm not you're left. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like sometimes like you, you really need one and you cannot find anybody. Anywhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But like shout out to you guys because I, I work with some some really great DBAs. Um, but uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, most of us developers, we tend to think algorithmically. And so when it gets complicated, we're going to go to what is more natural for us. And I think this is a tendency that they found at some point. And they're like, hey, we've got to have something in here structurally, a cultural norm that does not put us down this road. Right, right. And if you've ever worked on like a really, really nasty system that was just overly complex, you'll understand what I'm talking about, right? You know, like if you have like a simple web-based CRUD app, you can write an algorithm that, or a program that deals with that in such a way that it is completely impossible to follow but you are far less likely to be able to make the data that nasty. Yeah. No. Speaking of data. Yeah. Properly structured data in a readable format tends to make the correct algorithm more self-evident uh, while the reverse is not true at all. Uh, there is a reason things like Microsoft Tools went to an XML-based format instead of binary. It's because it's easier to kind of troubleshoot and to figure out what's going on in there. Even though, like, I'll, I'll say it and lots of other people will say it too. XML is like violence. Once you start using it, you have to use it everywhere. That said, it's still, it's still better than, hey, this is a binary, you know, here's a blob that represents a, you know, a Word document. How do I, how do I find things in here? Well, now you got to know exactly how it's serialized. And if that ever changes by a program update, you can't tell until something breaks in most cases, unless you're just really good, which we're not. So next, you should also avoid captive user interfaces. And this is, this is something that like, I understood what they meant by this, but the definition of it was not something I had where I could just like throw it out. So I actually had to look it up and go, how do I explain this? So a captive user interface, um, it, it's, it's basically like every program you wrote in a CS class. <laughs> all, all the way back through school. Um, it's defined as a way of designing a program such that a user has to manually interact with it before it continues. Now, this effectively breaks unattended automatic execution of your program by another program and is best avoided. So the exact opposite of, you know, how front-end web design works. Ish. Yeah. Because you can you can cram stuff in there. <laughs> programmatically you could script the browser yeah but like, like i'm saying like it it's the the it's idea awful. the I'm, I'm talking about the mindset is like the yeah. the opposite of that because like your mindset with that is making that user like is making a captive user interface yeah well the for, writers for, of that thing are your clients especially yeah. if you're a unix if you're building something that's using the unix philosophy there is a user interface that uses your app Right. But that isn't yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, imagine you had a small app that computed the cube of a number that was passed in. If you require the user to manually enter the number, you know, rather than like taking it on a command line, say you, you have them like select from a scroll bar or something. Oh, wow, I hate those. Then it's not possible, say, to write a shell script that gets the cubes of all the numbers between one and 1,000. 
It'd be a lot of scrolling. Well, and you know, realistically, yeah, that's an overly simple explanation of the program too, yeah. right? Because you probably would just do that raw in the shell script. Yeah, yeah, but still, you know. But yeah, that's, uh, that, that's the idea, you know, because, you know, hey, you're waiting for user input and everything is halted until that user input comes in. I remember back in the day on, I guess it was on Windows, there was, I'm trying to remember exactly how this occurred. Oh, I know, it was in a, it was a web server environment. And we had a third-party component that would pop up a licensing dialogue when you didn't have the proper license or your license had expired. Seems reasonable because, hey, it's, it's popping up in Visual Studio. Oh, yo, dog, let me send you 600 bucks for, you know, crapcomponent.ocx because this was, this was back a while. This was ActiveX times. Yeah. Okay, cool. The only problem is they didn't have a reliable method of detecting that you were running in development mode. So when you put that sucker on a server and your license expired, your web server locked up hard because it was an unattended user interface. Mm, And it's running as the web server user, which is not an interactive user. So it just sits there and hangs. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so you'll have a production web server go down because of that. And, And it starts at random. So like whoever the last dev is who committed, they think they broke the whole server and they don't know why. Yep, because you have a captive user interface. Like that's how dangerous this stuff is, you know, in this type of philosophy. Oh yeah, and and again, like I said, it's it's the opposite philosophy as like when you're building a user experience. Right. That's why I said that. Like that's why I was saying this is the opposite of that. This is like a, a different mindset. Well, this the funny part is is it was actually a GUI component vendor that did this. <laughs> right. So they could have in their components said, hey, the license has expired. Let me pop up a bar in the website where someone can see it. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. disrupt operations. Just go, hey, this license has expired. Somebody will see that pretty quick. But they didn't do that. Now, I, honestly, I don't know that it's necessarily great to put that in somebody else's web interface either. You know, the, the proper approach is probably something like having some kind of admin contact that's out of band. Yeah. But I mean, at least, like, let somebody know, don't take a production web server down because you're dumb. So, finally, keep things in flat text files where possible. You may be familiar with this from Linux. Yeah, go, going back to uh, to all the text we've been talking about. Text files are much easier to work with. Uh, yeah, we know. We work with them all the time uh, for the podcast. With uh, We work with them when we write code, too. That's true. Tons of ways to edit them, and they are easier to reverse engineer and make things more discoverable. This, by the way, is why people, a lot of people really, really hate the Windows registry, right? Because it's this blob that you really can only read it with their tool or with some tool that knows how to talk to it through an API. It's not really portable, you know, in that sense. And things have to be structured a certain way or, you know, it's just not going to work. The other thing about text files that's really handy is they're they're kind of a well-known thing, right? So they can be used easily as both inputs and outputs of applications. So you could have, you know, for instance, an app that needs a settings file, right? And 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 you just assume, hey, the user does this manually. Well, let's say next year KDE decides they're going to put it in their desktop environment. And so they have a GUI dialogue that writes that file out 
for your app to use because they want it in their user interface. They can build something that utilizes your stuff and you have no clue. That's that's the idea there. It also opens up a lot of other opportunities for more complex scripting. So for instance, if something is a text file, I can say, okay, in this circumstance, I want to symlink something else in there instead of this text file, or I want to swap symlinks and run something and then swap it back. So like I could do that with config files, for instance, and change the way an app runs. So, you know, like there's some really complex, neat stuff that you could do with that. And it's also a lot easier to back up, transfer, and otherwise manipulate flat files without specialized tooling. Because again, like editing text is something we have done for a very, very long time. So guys, while the Unix philosophy is old, it's not old like a dinosaur, it's old like crocodiles. It's still very relevant for the way that software is built today. In particular, the lessons of the early Unix pioneers will probably always be relevant for software development. They learned the hard way about what is required to make stable, maintainable software for general purpose computing used by other people. And even in today's world of massive distributed cloud-based systems, the early lessons from the old Unix days are still very, very good ones. After all, you can still see echoes of this philosophy in today's discussions about microservices. And this is unlikely to change even in your lifetime because these principles are based upon hard-won knowledge at a time when computing was very different than today. Right, you still see things like, you know, passing commands to chat GPT. Right, that's a thing. You probably are always going to see this. So it's, it's very important to know this stuff. And that's pretty much all we've got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.